Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. This voiceover is once again being recorded in my bungalow next to the sea in Guadeloupe. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick anything they choose from any time in their life, but they must pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is Rosie Willby, who is an award-winning comedian, author, speaker, and the creator of the hit podcast and book, The Breakup Monologues. She's appeared many times on BBC Radio 4 programmes, including Woman's Hour, Loose Ends, Saturday Live and Forethought, on lots of TV programmes, including Good Morning Britain, and at major festivals, including Latitude and Glastonbury. Her first book, Is Monogamy Dead?, was shortlisted for the Diva Literary Awards 2017 and longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize 2018 and followed her TED Talk on the same subject. Her acclaimed trilogy of solo shows investigating the psychology of love began with The Science of Sex and ended with The Conscious Uncoupling, which toured to venues including London's South Bank Centre and was shortlisted for the Funny Women Best Show. Nicknamed the lesbian Louis Theroux, not by me I have to say, Rosie loves to use humour to unpack difficult questions about modern life and spread awareness of more conscious ways of beginning, maintaining and ending human relationships. She presents radio shows for the BBC, Virgin Radio and Resonance FM and writes for publications including The Guardian, The Sunday Times, Cosmo, Stylist and New Statesman. Now, I met Rosie at Kite Festival earlier this year, where I recorded our 300th episode with Dave Gorman. If you haven't listened to it, it's well worth it. And Rosie and I begin our chat with her talking about that festival. And then we talk about lots of other things. I hope you enjoy it. I 
I think I was on doing recording my podcast at the same time as John Major, and I thought that's a bit of a first, mm-hmm. actually, being a, a program clash with a former prime minister <laughs> doesn't happen often. <laughs> and your your thing was absolutely rammed, wasn't it? At Kite, yeah, it was fabulous. It was... I thought with Lou Sanders, lovely. Yeah, Lou lovely Lou Sanders. We were recording my podcast, the breakup monologues, and talking all about breakups, and we had some contributions from the audience, including two people who had broken up just before the festival but had decided to still come because they booked tickets when they were together. Mm. But it turned out afterwards that she was not as happy about it as she thought she was. Uh. So some other women from the audience actually ended up adopting her and looking after her for the rest of the festival. So she ditched the guy that yeah. had dumped her and she was having a lovely time with them and I kept catching up with them throughout the festival. So it was a lovely thing that, you know, we had changed the course of her weekend. <laughs> it was lovely. I spoke to a couple of people afterwards, particularly there was a girl who said that she'd just broken up the day before. <gasps> And you said to her, how how are you feeling? And she actually very honestly said, not great. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't be, would you, just the day after? It's a very difficult thing, I think. Well, I say this, and I think, as I told you, I have never broken up with anybody, and nobody's ever broken up with me. You're a rare beast. (laughs) I'm a very rare breed. I started going out (laughs) with my wife. She was fundamentally... I did sort of, at school, had a girlfriend that I would go to parties with, so it meant that when it came to the slow dance, we would dance together. Oh, a little slow dance. God, I'd forgotten all about slow dances (laughs) at the school disco. Yeah, but apart from that, I was so... I was so self-centred, probably, and so <laughs> keen on the on acting and being in plays. Yeah. I just thought, no, this is going to completely get in the way. I can't possibly have a relationship with anybody. It's going to ruin everything. Let's say you were focused. Well, yeah, let's say That's that. That's a good word. Okay. Yeah. Yes, focused rather than self-centred, maybe, but <laughs> I think probably not. And then I met my wife doing a play, and that was it. Mm. And we've been together ever since. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I'm not really... You know, I listened and listened to the whole conversation, fascinated, really, because it's not a thing that I talk about. It's not a thing that I've ever really thought about, how painful that would be. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you'll find is that people like me who've had several breakups actually end up being less afraid of it. And in some ways that can enhance your relationships because you don't have this sort of ogre hovering over you, this fear of of the terrible breakup, because you know you probably would be okay, because when we do have that happen, we do often discover hidden inner strengths that we never realised that we had, and we often embark on exciting new adventures that we can't imagine in the thick of it the day after the breakup, like that poor woman at the festival. No. But it does often open this exciting new chapter. And there are a lot of relationships, I think, where one or both partners are sort of acting for each other. They're pretending to be the person the other person wants. Uh, and <laughs> and that's never going to be a good relationship, is it? That's never going to turn out well, because eventually you just go, I just can't keep this up. <laughs> yeah, spoken as an actor as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been playing well, this role I- for 35 years and that's enough. <laughs> Bit good, like being in Coronation Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, we're on our best behaviour on the first few dates, but then the rose-tinted glasses come off. We start to see each other for who we who we are. I think a lot changes when you live together, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Mm. Uh, although not for everybody. I, I 
can't mm. I can't remember who it was, but I definitely remember an older actress said, well, the secret is never let your husband see you completely naked. And I went, really? <laughs> Should I've never let my husband know the lights always go off before everything else comes off. I leave it to his imagination. It's much more fun. <laughs> okay. A bit of mystery. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when I've loved chatting about relationships to people and it's going to come in a little bit into some of my time capsule. How exciting. Well, let's find out what those things are then, Rosie. What would be the first thing from your life that you put into a time capsule? Well, the, the first thing that I've put into a time capsule will surprise some people because um, before I started my podcast and wrote my recent book, The Breakup Monologues, my first book was called Is Monogamy Dead? And yes. so <laughs> people think that I'm telling people that they mustn't be monogamous. We must all be kind of swinging. And, you know, I have had uh, protest letters occasionally that have been very hilarious. And I've been <laughs> able to read them out on stage um, <laughs> because people think I'm telling everyone they should have lots of sex with everybody, at every possible opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think anything goes. And if you are doing that, good luck to you. But I also think that traditional monogamous relationships are fine too Mm. if they're an active choice rather than a sort of cultural default that we think is the only narrative for having a relationship. So I'm going to put monogamy in my time capsule and preserve it because I think we are now opening up a whole discussion about relationships, which is largely progressive. And we're thinking about open relationships and ethical non-monogamy and these different ways, different approaches to love and relationships. Mm. But I wonder if it will go so far at some point in the future that we don't have monogamous relationships in that traditional sense that we we often think of relationships now. Um, you know, I'm talking very much how we think of relationships in the Western world. I mean, actually, mm-hmm. you know, there are 18 Amazonian tribes that believe in the concept of partable paternity, right. which is where a child can have multiple fathers because yeah. they think things all mix together, you know, after you've <laughs> had sex with, with multiple lovers. So, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And my um, first book was inspired when I heard that in many surveys around 50% of people confessed to cheating. I mean, you were just talking about how painful it might be if, you're, if your wife went off with somebody else. But, you know, a lot of people are having other relationships and affairs. And it got me thinking, if you are in a monogamous relationship and you're not cheating, that does mean you've got to look closely at your partner, doesn't <laughs> it's it? Because if it's 50%, 50% left. <laughs> it means it's got to be the other person's got to be doing it. Um, so, yeah, it is a little bit of a worry. But because I realised that, like many people now, as opposed to you, Mike, who's been with one partner for a long time, I'm a serial monogamist. Mm -hmm. And so rather than taking the original Greek meaning of the word monogamy, which comes from monos gamos, meaning one marriage for life, now many of us sort of mean one marriage at a time. Um, (laughs) You know, we're serial monogamists. So I really wanted to look into monogamy and what it meant and what the possible alternatives were and how you could perhaps, rather than lie to one another and cheat, you could be openly polyamorous, as some people now are. Mm. And there's a whole new language around that. And if you've reached your threshold of partners, you can say that you're polysaturated. <laughs> I think I'm unpolysaturated. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's so interesting and fun and it has been a real journey for me to look into monogamy, into the real kind of science and sociology and, you know, anthropology behind it all and think about how that applies to my own life and my own patterns of behaviour. So I found myself doing some out there things that have pushed me out of my own comfort zone 
around sort of sex and relationships and love. And <laughs> one of those was I did comedy at a sex party. Right. Which was a very interesting experience where I think I learned more about boundaries and about sort of communication and respect and mutual trust mm. than in my life outside of that. Because if you're going to go to an event like that, you have to, on entering the space, sign up to a, a list of rules about respecting other people's boundaries, about getting consent for anything that you do and so on. Mm. And so it's quite fun being part of the little cabaret that I'd like to point out doesn't go on whilst people are actually <laughs> engaged in any sexual activity. <laughs> it's sort of... I was going down so well. There was one man shouting, yes, 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 all the way through it. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in, like this, this sort of sex room, if you like, is mm. cordoned off and that hasn't been opened yet. And you're doing a little cabaret to, to get people going, to warm up. You're, you're right. the sort of foreplay. <laughs> yeah, to relax everybody. To... That's a good idea. That's it, that's yeah. it. Yeah, you've got to keep to a quite tight, time you know because um at many comedy clubs comedians overrun terribly but you know you don't want to overrun when people are quite impatient to, to go and go well, and engage well i'm sure it would become sex. obvious wouldn't it <laughs> you sort of go i can see that you're um, you're keen for me to finish it stands out a mile <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah so that was just a really eye-opening experience and actually one of the kind of friendliest most ethical events that i've been to where people were just being really kind to one another and respectful and not really getting drunk or mm -hmm. rowdy because um, to foster a sense of accountability, there's what's called a PAL system where you can't enter the space without a PAL who is somebody who knows you well, who's going to vouch for you and say, if they're being a dick, I'll take them home. Right. And so nobody ends up being a bit of a dick because they don't want to, you know, be escorted out for the party. No. I'm quite, I think probably my upbringing, you know, which is rather uh, strict Catholic, I've always yes. been slightly prudish when it comes to, <laughs> to sex and only in the sense that I get embarrassed easily. You're coping very well with this I know, conversation. I, am. I find it fascinating. <laughs> As life yeah. goes on, I become less and less embarrassed about it because I've met all sorts of people in my life and they lead very different lives to me. And yet I love many of them. So I, I think this idea that, that people behaving in a different way to you, that people see that as a threat. And I just don't. My experience is that actually it's an enlivening thing. People being different from you is a good thing. Yeah, it's enriching, isn't it? Yeah. It's the tapestry of life. It's, you know, all the different people you meet, the different stories you hear, allow you to make choices about who you want to be and how you want to live your life mm. and it informs you in in really interesting ways and it may well be that you think well sex parties are not for me that sounds a bit out there but I think just knowing that they exist sort of liberates you and opens your mind a little bit and it certainly helped me to feel a bit less prudish yes. <laughs> and open my mind a little bit. Well just to admit to yourself that you like sex is a difficult thing. <laughs> no I mean a lot of people don't they keep it secret as if people are going to be surprised by it. Yeah especially women as well of course mm -hmm. there's a whole narrative about women and how we shouldn't enjoy sex yeah. we should sort of just lie back and you know do our duty you know <laughs> yes and also that thing of if you do enjoy sex and suddenly you're a, a slut what an extraordinary word that is isn't it oh it's terrible yeah and 
it's so annoying how for men there's a whole different oh, yeah. dialogue going on mm. because they're studs and, you know, it's and a sort bit of, of a celebrated. Lad and those sort of yeah. things. And, or just the simple, he's a flirt. I mean, flirting is great. Flirting's fine. But I mean, again, this is something that's interesting about when I first wrote my book, that Mm. was 2016, and it came out in 2017. And it was loosely based on a comedy show that I'd taken to Edinburgh in 2013. And so it's interesting how much our conversation has moved on since that time. Because when I was handing out a flyer for a show in 2013, asking if monogamy was dead, people were really a bit... Oh, yeah, I don't know. And some people came along to the show just to be angry um, and weren't sort of necessarily listening to what I had to say. And part of the research for that show was doing a survey asking what counts as cheating. So, of course, for some people, it might not be as black and white as you think. It's quite a nuanced question, isn't it? So for some people, flirting might count as cheating. You know, your partner might not be comfortable with you flirting with somebody. And particularly this new set of behaviours that come under the banner of micro-cheating, which is sort of online flirting or, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe connecting with an ex on Facebook and liking all their posts, but somehow not disclosing how much contact you have with them to your partner. Yes. I mean, I think my wife is happy with my flirting. Not happy, but accepts my flirting, accepts it's part of my nature, really, because she probably sees me as a people pleaser. Flirting for me is a thing that is just that sort of, we quite like each other, don't we? That's all I'm asking of people. If it goes beyond that, I'd step back immediately. It's a bit like I've got lots of friends, obviously, who are gay, and I've gone to gay clubs, and people have come up to me and said, hi, do you want a drink? And, I, and I've said, yeah, lovely. And, and, and I've said, I, I'm not gay. And they go, no, that's fine. Okay, we'll just chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd stayed in a fantastic pub in Birmingham with two fantastic men, Paul and Paul, who <laughs> ran it. I love it how people get together with someone who's got the same name. It happens so much. <laughs> they were just such lovely people. And they kept certain things from me. They sort of said, don't go in that room. Oh. That's a dark room. I do have quite a sweet friend who thought that when gay men talked about going into the dark room, they were all really into photography. (laughs) (laughs) And he thought the wet room was a well-sealed shower room. Yes, I know. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually talking about about the wet room and how gay men are often quite free and easy about about sex in quite an impressive way, really, Mm. that I'm quite envious of at times. (laughs) Another thing I did for research for my book was... I went to the lesbian sauna because I thought, because there's one night where they open a gay sauna up just to the women. Mm. And I thought, oh, so if it's anything like when my gay men friends go, it'll be, ooh, <laughs> it'll be, it'll be quite a bit, <laughs> be wild. It'd be a bit saucy. But of course, because women just have such different cultural and social programming, most of us just ended up sitting, having a cup of tea and chatting <laughs> and, and sort of folding the towels up and tidying <laughs> after the hedonistic gay men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. How does your wife feel about, obviously you are acting, but when you kiss people in shows that you've been acting in, Mm. how how does she feel about that? She knows how easily I become embarrassed about sex, so she's always impressed that she can't see the embarrassment. There's nothing sexy about doing a sex scene at all. Oh, no, I'm sure sure there isn't. I had to kiss (laughs) the actress Romola Gary, who's a fantastic actress but she oh she's beautiful yeah beautiful but but she was 19 at the time she was basically the same age as my daughter at the time Mm. and oh my god i had an awful day i just spent the whole time saying i'm so sorry 
Oh, well, I'm sure you made it very comfortable for her. Yeah, absolutely. I did have to snog Olivia Coleman. A French kiss. <laughs> oh. Specifically French kiss. <laughs> Specifically yeah. French kiss. <laughs> because I was the world's French kissing champion. And that was the joke. <laughs> We did a sketch together, and at the end of it, she said, what's, what's your trophy for? I said, oh, I'm the world's French kissing champion. She went, oh, really? I didn't know there were competitions. I said, oh, yes. No, very competitive. She said, oh. I said, I'm very good at it. She said, are you? I said, you want me to show you? Okay, yeah. So then I had, okay. to, we had to kiss for about a minute, and then I came back and she just went, hmm, I can see why you won the trophy. And that was the end yeah. of the sketch. Very funny. Brilliant. Mm. <laughs> Well, you can't really do a short French kiss, can you? No. You've got to, it takes a moment, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, my favourite line from The Joy of Sex is, a good mouth-to-mouth kiss should leave its recipient breathless but not asphyxiated. <laughs> the idea that you would suffocate someone with a kiss, that's extraordinary. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Well, Rosie, we've definitely put monogamy into the time capsule. That's your first thing. Yes. That's a unique thing in any time capsule. Mm. Thank you. Right. So let's move on to number two. Okay. My next thing is Britpop because I enjoyed this kind of cultural period of history because I was in my 20s and I was a musician before I turned to comedy and then writing books and podcasting and journalism and all the other things I do. And I had a band which just went under my surname, Wilby, and we were kind of supporting all the bands at those venues in Camden. And I started my career in journalism, writing about other bands and reviewing. And I was um, working at Time Out magazine and we would get all the listings rolling in by fax. (laughs) It was all still really old school and lo-fi. I actually um, had a fax machine at home, which once in a bizarre burglary, the only two things that they stole were my fax machine and my tennis racket. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a really fun time in my life and an innocent time in my life, which came to sort of an abrupt halt because uh, my music career ended when my mum died uh-huh. and things changed a lot in my life and how vulnerable I wanted to be in what I was writing and performing and sharing with people. And I think comedy initially was a bit of a a way of hiding and sort of Mm. hiding behind something that felt more fun and escapist. Although eventually I've come to this much more raw and vulnerable way of performing comedy and and exploring things like breakups and loss and and grief anyway. Um, But I think for a while comedy felt like a bit of escapism. But also soon after um, my mum passing, and we do often have things happening all at the same time, don't we? Mm. And... Um, There was a fire where my then partner and I, my then girlfriend and I, we lost most of our stuff in this horrible fire. And it was just on the eve of my album coming out. And um, I was releasing it on my own label, but it had some great press and I had distribution into all of the shops. And it was was all very exciting. But um, we suddenly had really no clothes or anything, you know, just the things we were standing up in. And so all my friends... um, looked down the backs of their wardrobes for old clothes that they could lend us and things. And there was some dark humour in this because one friend had included her brownie uniform, (laughs) 
which is just such a weird thing to sort of pop in the bag and think, well, Rosie's quite small. Maybe she could wear this. <laughs> I would love the idea, though, that as a result of that, your image on stage changed and that was the thing that launched you. And they said, this girl, she dresses like no one else. It's amazing. It's sort of almost like the oh, yeah. 50s, but it's not. It's incredible. I could have been the original Britney Spears, couldn't I? <laughs> yeah. In a brownie Doing a uniform. saucy brownie. Yes. Yeah. Now, what badges have you got? <laughs> Hit me, Arkayla, one more time. Yes, <laughs> yes brilliant. <laughs> so did you miss performing music? I do really, really miss mm. it. And if I occasionally pick up the guitar again and sing a song, as I did when... Um, my now wife and I, we got engaged. I sang the Neil Young song, Harvest Moon. Uh, I picked up the guitar again and rehearsed it up with a couple of friends um, to sort of surprise her with a little serenade, which was so sweet. Mm, lovely. No, I really love it. And I would genuinely love to sing again and perform again in some way, because when I did perform music... I was really shy and I really struggled with how to be on stage. Mm. And it was only really when I threw myself into the weird world of comedy that I learned more about stage presence and, and commanding attention and having a bit of a, you know, just in the way you hold yourself and carry yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, in, in what you say and how you edit that and focus that and hone that. I, you know, I learned about how to command that attention because sometimes when you do comedy, especially in the early days, you maybe have as little as three minutes or, or even 90 seconds. I did one mm. competition audition where you get 90 seconds. Good thinking, Lord. What am I going to do in 90 seconds? You know, when I was doing music, it would have taken me that long to tune my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> was there ever any part of the music, though, talking to people as well? Did you, did you, sort, of, did you have sort of a nascent beginning there? Well, yes, because I used to chat between the songs. When my band all sort of broke up, I was performing solo for a while and I realised my songs were all quite sort of depressing and bleak, you know, <laughs> like the sort of archetypal female singer-songwriter with a guitar. You know, here's my song about a breakup. Yes, yeah, about everybody leaving me and going solo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but sort of, to sort of balance that, I started being very self-deprecating between the songs. Right. And people were really laughing. Uh, and so that was what propelled me into entering a few stand-up comedy competitions. Yeah. But, yeah, I really loved that period in the late 90s when I was doing music and, and gigging around some wonderful venues, many of which don't exist. I regularly gigged at a place called the 12 Bar Club, which was in Soho. And mm. now there is something on the same site, but it was it was like London's oldest building, I think, or central London's oldest building. It was this old forge. Um, mm. And it was this incredible place um, where it wasn't necessarily the best venue in terms of the audience being able to see because <laughs> the stage was <laughs> at weird height. So people were either really looking up at quite a severe angle <laughs> or they were looking down on you from a balcony and sort of looking at the top of your head. But that was just all part of the charm it was so quirky and wonderful yeah did you play Camden Pelly no I didn't play that one but I did play um I did play a lot of the sort of Britpop haunts like the Camden Barfly and Monarch right. and all of those sort Brilliant. of ones but and I did play Ronnie Scott's once as well fantastic and did you support anybody that you now think oh that was a moment well weirdly myself and my keyboard player so he, the others had all left, but he hadn't left yet. Mm. Um, <laughs> we supported Bob Geldof on one or two tour dates. And 
it was a bit depressing because I thought, oh, what a wonderful human being he is, all the things that he's he's done in his life. Our only interaction <laughs> with him was he sort of grunted at us in the corridor. <laughs> yeah, I felt a bit sort of disappointed. Whereas I did support Midge when he was doing some dates. Uh-huh. And he I supported him at a date in St. at St. Helens. And he was so lovely. He was like, oh, my dressing room's got tea and coffee and everything and you don't have much in yours. Come into mine, come and have a cup of tea, have a chat you know and he was so lovely so yes. shout out to Midge York because he was amazing yeah I um, met Midge once through his his wife strangely enough and he was really sweet and really charming but I did say to him do you get really really fed up when that royalty check comes through being the co-writer of Feed the World the royalty yeah. must go through his account as it were but he gets none of it and he said yes. I can't believe I'm still making this much money for charity every year Fantastic. Fantastic thing, isn't it? I remember once getting my royalty statement and being really surprised that some of my quite sort of dark songs... Um, I mean, I remember my girlfriend was um, really excited when I once said that I'd written a song inspired by her. And uh, she said, what's it called? And I said, Underachievers of the World Unite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why did that relationship of, end? <laughs> it, was, it was, well, she was in a job that was beneath her and she actually went right. on to a very, very high-flying career. So, mm. you know, I'd like to credit myself with giving her that yeah, motivation. pushing her in that direction. Uh, you, yeah. know, you know, sort of rudimentary form of career coaching, I think. <laughs> um, but... That and some other slightly bombastically titled songs had appeared on my statement under the heading UK Karaoke. (laughs) Fantastic. Somebody's doing that somewhere. How brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all happening now. Blur, they're back singing their full set. And I've got a friend whose wife is a cellist. And I saw her the other day and I said to her, what are you doing at the moment? She said, oh, I'm touring. I said, who with? She said, Pulp. Oh, Oh, I was envious. I was a Pulp fan. I I used to write a lot of columns in Time Out about Pulp. Mm. And probably out of those three big bands, they were the three big major bands, really, weren't they? Oasis, Blur and Pulp. Mm. I was probably more of a Pulp fan, although Blur as well, but less so Oasis. Got to say, some of the songs have really endured, you know. Amazing, yeah, yeah. 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 I listened to Radio 2 driving back from Brighton the other night and drove back in an enormous thunderstorm. So the sky kept flashing, these amazing flashes. And and on Radio 2, Sounds of the 90s, they were playing people who'd performed at Glastonbury in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And at one point, Fern Cotton said, so this is a band who you'll all know, she said, and amazingly, they stepped in at the last minute. Stone Roses were supposed to play and Pulp stepped in for them and played the main stage. And... This that you're going to hear now is the first ever performance of Disco 2000. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? Brilliant. And then she followed it with Common People, which is just possibly the greatest song of all time. Oh, yeah. So brilliant. Yes. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, no, I loved that whole era. And also, do you remember the magazine cover that Liam Gallagher and Patsy Kensett did where they're sort of under a union track duvet? I subverted that for a solo show that I did in my comedy days, how not to make it in Britpop. (laughs) And uh, we kind of spoofed that image and I was Liam with the little sort of beanie hat on and with a little roll-up in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> nice thing to have. I, I must dig it out. Do. Get it up. Frame it. Yeah. Lovely. OK, well, let's put Britpop in. Great fun. So uh, that's two things. What's number three? OK, time for a quick commercial break. As Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mozart probably said, I'll be back. Yeah, bark. 
I'll forget it. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Rosie Wilby would like to have in her time capsule. Number three is introversion. Because I think we live in a world that celebrates extroversion and extroverts actually get paid more and get promoted more and and are celebrated Mm -hmm. in this sort of world of shouting out loud and and showing off that, that we exist in. And what I found was that during the pandemic and when we our lives suddenly changed, I was able to celebrate my introversion. And I think I'm a bit of a mix of introvert and extrovert. And a, a study done recently actually found that comedians often are a sort of quite conflicted mix of sort of wanting to be out there and be on stage, but also really connecting with their alone time as well. Yes. And I sort of do love that and celebrate that time when I'm on my own on a train home from the gig, <laughs> you know. I'm like, oh, I'm not with all those audience people anymore. I'm just in my own thoughts. How lovely. So I really embraced my inner introvert during the pandemic. And even though it was a terrible time, and there's no no question about that, there was something that was actually quite joyful about the sort of freedom and space and headspace that it opened up. I think tons of people changed their routines, Mm -hmm. changed their working lives, worked more from home, worked more flexibly, spent more time outdoors in nature and celebrating being outdoors. So I do think there were some good things where we sort of celebrated our introvert and introvert qualities more during that time. And I almost didn't even though, of course, I wanted to get gigging again and go to festivals like the wonderful one where we met recently. Mm. But there was something I wanted to hold on to about what I found joyful about being sort of in our own little bubble, quite literally. I think a lot of people have held on to those things that they discovered then. I don't think many people have gone straight back to exactly the person they were before. And I think you're absolutely right. I know a lot of what what would be regarded as comedic actors not necessarily stand-ups, but true of a lot of the stand-ups that I know, that actually they have that much quieter 
introverted side to them, as well as the ability to go on stage and be, well, some of them, enormous in their performance. You should celebrate the ability to be introverted. I think most of the time I am extrovert. I'm not particularly shy. I'm not embarrassed easily. Oh, except around sex. Except when it comes to (laughs) sex. That's true, yes. And it means quite often that people think that you can't do the opposite. But I think everybody has both sides to them. Yeah, and and I think it's good to be able to spend time on your own and explore that resilience. Mm. Um, Because so many really, really loud sort of out there people I know, they really struggle with then going home and being with themselves on their own. Yeah, no, I can understand that. Quite often, those people have to keep driving themselves. They have to find another thing to do and another thing to do because they can't actually sit with their own company. Mm. Mm. I wonder what that says. I'm not wise enough or knowledgeable enough to know, but there we are. So (laughs) introvert in us. Let's put that in. That's your third thing, Rosie. Okay. And my next thing that I'm going to put in, which sort of relates to many of the things we were talking about earlier, and I'm going to put um, homosexuality and being gay Mm -hmm. in the time capsule because my thinking is that in a world where we're all becoming more fluid in our ideas around sexual orientation and our gender identities, which largely is a progressive thing, Mm -hmm. I wonder if it does start to erase some of the identities at either end of the sort of old binary, if you like. And so the idea of of being 100% gay may not, last it may not survive which worries me slightly because I've been very attached to the sort of cultural and social identity of being a gay woman it's been really important for the process of sort of campaigning for equality and because when you're sort of looking for legal change, sometimes things do need to be expressed in more black and white terms. Mm -hmm. And whilst it's great that we're all becoming more fluid and men and women, whether they're straight or gay or bi or pan or cis or trans, you know, it it doesn't matter so much now. We we can all be human beings. But I do think there was something very brave about the women and men older than me who put themselves out there and said, well, I am different, I am gay, and I want to be able to marry another man or marry another woman. Mm. Um, And so I do think that's worth celebrating. But, I mean, even I've realised that even though I'm quite attached to sort of always having described myself as a lesbian, that I'm probably not, because if we think about our sort of pure animal sexuality, I'm probably much more bisexual or or pansexual, as we might say now, because one of the things that I did for research for my my latest book, there's actually a chapter about going along and participating in a sex lab experiment, (laughs) which you would find horribly awkward, I'm sure. (laughs) And so basically you're wired up to the machines and you are shown erotic images and your sort of levels of arousal are being monitored in various ways, including some sort of more innocent things like monitoring your pupil dilation, but some sort of, you know, Uh, genital arousal is measured (laughs) also. Um, And what's particularly fun about this experiment is that in between the erotic clips, they show you a control clip to sort of calm you down. And that is a David Attenborough nature documentary. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my God, shush, you're turning me on, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, they're not measuring your arousal during during the control clip, <laughs> during the sort of uh, images of the African savanna and sort of grass <laughs> shooting up from the plains or, you know, no. uh, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that was a really interesting experience, which made me realise that I, you know, I'm my sort of sexual orientation is probably much more fluid. I mean, I am somebody who had boyfriends before I came out mm-hmm. as gay, and you know, I I would never say that that was a terrible or horrible experience. It was sometimes really, really fun. There was one of my boyfriends who I kept getting back together with, actually, even after I'd come out as gay, <laughs> right. because we just got on and we connected. And sometimes it's it is about the person rather than really whether they're male or female or non-binary. You know, sometimes that doesn't matter so much. No, absolutely. I think just the process of just sex is a very strange thing, that sex is... Oh, my goodness. It, it, you know, <laughs> it feels... It's you sort of go, well, that's sort of masturbation, really, isn't it, what you're doing there? That just, if the other person doesn't matter, yeah. what is it? Well, some people do do it that way, yeah. <laughs> I think. But, I mean, it, it's so interesting how... I was listening to a programme about homosexuality or kind of same-sex pairings and attractions in the animal world and how for many, many years an argument that conservatives would use against homosexuality was to say that it was against nature and you (laughs) don't see it in nature. Whereas, of course, now, you know, we've had gay penguins, lesbian seagulls. There's even a song about lesbian seagulls because this whole colony were found in this uh, island in the US. (laughs) and Bonobos? Bonobos are always at it. Always at it. Well, bonobo society is matriarchal because the females are having such a good time together. <laughs> they, they don't need the men, no, really. Every They're now and just, again, they just forming alliances. You know, come on, do yeah. what you're supposed to do and get away from me. And I'm going back to exactly the fun that. bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, what you do see in the animal world is often a sort of bisexuality or pansexuality, a kind of fluid sexuality, because in an evolutionary sense, you know, if you have your eggs and for whatever sad reason your mate dies mm. or disappears, flies off, you know, and <laughs> never seen again. <laughs> Maybe the only option is is another female. And, you know, that was why they, they discovered these lesbian pairings of seagulls who had twice as many eggs in their nest because they had both lost their male partners and decided that they would couple up and raise chicks together. Yes. So, yeah, why not? And very easy to get them fertilised. There are male seagulls all over the place desperately trying to do it. So easy. <laughs> there are several animals that can change sex depending on whether they need to or not. Yeah, which is, you know, it, it makes it seem bizarre that we are so sort of up in arms at the moment about human beings doing that. Mm-hmm. We, we struggle with it and don't seem to cope with it very well, whereas actually it could be an incredibly natural thing. Again, you know, we tend to sort of like to think, oh, that doesn't go on in the animal world, but it does. (laughs) Yeah, quite. So maybe it's perfectly natural. (laughs) But I do understand what you're saying about that differentiation or that linear thing seems to have become circular almost. Yes, which is is no bad thing, but I think there's there needs to be a sophisticated and nuanced understanding mm. of the people who might well say, "Well, I'm not straight," but actually they live a heteronormative life yes. and they have a certain set of privileges attached to that. Mm. And so I think as we become more blurred, we lose sight of that a little bit and the fact that there are some people who are still struggling and are still experiencing great prejudice. And also, as I say, historically 
Um, I was actually interviewing Peter Tatchell the other day on a radio show. And people like that who've put themselves in the way of, of violence mm-hmm. and hate just to try and help people who, who are gay, who identify in a certain way, you know, I think really need to be celebrated because they've been incredibly brave. Yes. At my age, when I was a young man, there were lots of men who were actors, older actors, who were gay. But they could only be gay within the community of the theatre. In general society, they weren't. And they'd grown up in a world where it was illegal. So they felt very Mm. protective of it and very secretive about it. And I always felt for them because they were so clearly only really happy when they were able to relax in the company of a group of actors who they knew and trusted. So often their life revolved entirely around touring a theatre show or being in a theatre show, and that was the place they felt at ease and at home. Mm. It was interesting to see some of them, as it were, come out as Ian McKellen did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think of all those years that he was a gay man and actually it was only within a, a sort of a closed community that he allowed himself to reveal that and then he revealed it to the world. And it's a momentous thing because him doing it gave the licence to so many other people to do it. It's a brilliant thing that he did. Absolutely, it really was. And my coming out story that I used to often share on stage was that I, when I came out to my parents... Um, they were the ones who were quite excited about it, you know, and were all like, oh, I'd also done something interesting. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> and they were sort of like ha- telling all the neighbours, you know, practically handing out flyers and printing out T-shirts. <laughs> and my mum got excited and was trying to tell me something about her and her friend Joan when they used to go on holiday together. Um. So basically she was saying she could have been a lesbian in a in a different era so (laughs) but it's mortifying when you are a teenager and you don't want to hear that you don't want to think about your parents having any sort of um, (laughs) sexual identity and and particularly not stealing your thunder if you're trying to come out and (laughs) you know i remember a lovely australian actor who always played very sort of angry and bombastic very straight men And he was the most fantastically gay man I've ever met. Once we got into the green room, he would just burst into life. And I was sort of such a shame that he didn't feel that he had the licence to do that in society. And so thank goodness, to a large extent, that's changed. Oh, absolutely. Things have changed so incredibly much, which is, of course, wonderful. And I'm now married to a woman, which is something I just never thought would happen in my lifetime. You know, when, when I was a student... Um, in the early 90s, we staged a same-sex wedding demo outside York Minster <laughs> and, like, two women got married and two men got married. And what I found out years later, because we took photos of it and stuff, and I tracked these photos down because I wanted to include them in a multimedia show that I mm-hmm. did a few years ago. And what I found out was one of the men wasn't actually gay. We couldn't find any gay men <laughs> at the time. So this lovely straight man stood in. Yeah. But I remember we were shouting, love is not a crime, through megaphones. And we were sort of shivering because it was a cold day. Mm. There was a bit of snow on the ground. It's Valentine's Day. But also because we thought we were suggesting something so sci-fi, so out there that would not happen in our lifetimes. Yes. And it's bizarre that things have moved on pretty quickly, but wonderful, wonderful. It's why we have to celebrate those people who had the courage and the bravery to stand up and declare themselves yeah. as gay in a society where that was a dangerous thing to do, an extremely dangerous thing to do. And it was not frowned upon at all for people to sort of go, well, let's just beat them up. Terrifying world. Exactly, exactly that. 
Imagine reversing that situation. Imagine if straight men like me had grown up and had to pretend that we weren't and we were threatened every time we said we were. You only have to put yourself in the position of other people, I think, to understand how awful it is for them and how important it is to let people be themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. And that's exactly why I wanted to um, to put this this concept, social construct, mm -hmm. into my time capsule. But should we move on to what I want to sort of put in the uh, yeah. in the bin? Yeah, as it absolutely. Were? Let's find out what that is. Well, I want to bury and forget about dating apps <laughs> because <laughs> I do think that the algorithms that they match people with are, are a load of rubbish. And it's largely luck when you do find somebody nice. Mm. I once was on a site which was supposed to send you your list of ideal matches and it sent me my own profile back to me. <laughs> <laughs> what was even weirder was it calculated that I was a 73% match. <laughs> Not even 100%, Mike. Well, there's always something <laughs> we dislike about ourselves, isn't there? <laughs> I suppose so. Um, but I do think face-to-face -face communication and connection is so much better than swiping on Tinder. It's sort of made us feel like people are a bit disposable. I, yeah. I, you know, a lot of dating experts would use this term, the gamification of love, so that actually dating and finding a partner has become like this this game. Mm. And it, it seems really it seems really odd to me and it's facilitated all these behaviors like ghosting and breadcrumbing and submarining um, ghosting is kind of like when you disappear most people know what that yeah. is but there's all these variants and my favorite one is marleying where you do ghost someone but you pop up again at christmas <laughs> that's very good <laughs> with a clanking of chains yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. what a great name yeah. um, well I can see how for some people it's opened up the possibility of dating and particularly if you're in a situation where you don't get to meet many people but it makes it very easy for people to be instantly dismissive of other people that's yeah. entirely on, do yeah. I like the look of that person? Now, maybe that's how we treat things in the real world when you actually meet people. But generally, you then get the chance or that person then gets the chance to show you another side. And the more that you like someone, the more attractive they appear, I think. Otherwise, only attractive people, according to the definition of what's supposed to be attractive, would find other very attractive people attractive. And everybody else would be just fodder. You wouldn't get a chance, <laughs> would you? And it doesn't work like that. Yeah. You see people who are, you know, by the definition of things, ugly, but they're not ugly because somebody else looks at them and sees beauty. Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely thought, isn't it? You know, it's interesting, actually. Another stat that I found out was that divorce rates actually surged after um, Brexit here in the UK. And also they have done in countries where there's been a similarly sort of binary election or poll, for example, Clinton versus Trump yeah. in the US. A lot of, I think, couples realised they were on opposite sides of a very binary argument. And also, um, you know, vaccines and anti-vaxxers, mm -hmm. that, that as well, it can be really polarising. Yeah. Well, I like the fact that generally, when you talk about these things, you don't talk about them just as I think this. You do it from, I think this because look what I found out. And you study it. 
you go in and you find out facts and information <laughs> about it that either support or disprove what you would have naturally thought. And I think that shows a diligence that <laughs> makes you worth listening to. Oh, good, good. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Although that said, I do in my work as well, I slightly lampoon the people who always quote studies as, as demonstrating something because, of course, you can use a set of data in any way you like mm. to prove a point and you can ignore other sets of data that do disprove your point. Um, and it's interesting to look at who is sponsoring these studies because I, I do quote a, a study that says that people who sleep in separate bedrooms are happier and actually it was sponsored by a bed company who want to sell twice as many beds right yeah, of course well i think your work is excellent it's very funny and at the same time you're saying something important so long may you continue oh thank you well i'd love to hear from people if they want to get in touch about their breakups yeah you're the person <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Rosie Wilby. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. I hope you had a good time. And if you did, then do tell others, which you could do very easily by rating this show highly, a mere click of a mouse away. Or write a nice review. That takes a little bit longer, obviously. If you subscribe to this podcast, which is lovely for us, especially if you subscribe to Acast Plus, which admittedly isn't free, but it won't break the bank either, in which case you'll get this podcast without ads and we'll get a little bit of money. And then eventually you'll get some little additional things once we've thought of something to do. Anyway, my time capsule and I are both on social media, so do search us out and say hello. We'll almost certainly say hello back. And then we can talk about other things if you like. And talking to things you might like, if you like the theme tune. And there it is. You can hear the whole of it uninterrupted on Spotify. It was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens. Thank heavens, or this would have sounded a right old mess. All right, yes, I know you think it sounds a right old mess anyway, but it would have been much worse. Now, just to give you an idea of the sort of mad life I lead, this voiceover is once again being recorded in my bungalow next to the sea in Guadeloupe. Now, since I last told you that, I've been all the way home, and now, a couple of weeks later, I've come all the way back for three days. But never mind, the sun is shining, the sea is calm, and I'm ready for a dip. So, see ya, suckers! <laughs> Yay! Oh, I do Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 